You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 381 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. A crowd of several thousand men, women, and children lined the street in front of the Massachusetts State House in Boston on May 28, 1863. They'd gathered to honor and cheer another regiment from the Commonwealth before it departed for the war. However, this farewell was unlike any that had preceded it, because this time, with the stride of each soldier's step, the onlookers witnessed history. In front of them marched the 54th Massachusetts, the first African-American volunteer regiment raised by a free northern state during the Civil War. The onset of the Civil War in 1861 set off a rush of free black men to enlist in the U.S. military, but a 1792 law barred, quote, persons of color from serving in the militia, end quote. Also, strong opposition in the North, as well as widespread prejudice that blacks were intellectually and socially inferior meant that their initial involvement was limited to tasks such as driving supply wagons, bearing the battle dead, and building railroads. But public opinion slowly began changing. Northern morale faltered after federal forces suffered a series of military defeats and fewer white men were willing to join the army. Pressured by this turn of events, on July 17, 1862, Congress passed a Confiscation Act that declared all slaves of rebel masters free as soon as they came into Union lines, and also a Militia Act that empowered the President to, quote, employ as many persons of African descent in any military or naval service for which they may be found competent. And Congress also repealed the 1792 law. A month later, on August 25, 1862, the War Department authorized Brigadier General Rufus Saxton, military governor of the Union-controlled South Carolina Sea Islands, to raise five regiments of black troops for federal service, with white men as officers. Volunteers came forward slowly at first, 
but by November 7th, the 1st Regiment had reached its quota and was mustered in as the 1st South Carolina Volunteer Regiment under the command of Massachusetts abolitionist Colonel Thomas Wentworth Higginson. A second regiment followed, led by Colonel James Montgomery. Still, Abraham Lincoln, for political reasons, hesitated to raise large numbers of black troops. To his abolitionist critics, who urged him to bow to the inevitability of enlisting black soldiers, the president responded, quote, to arm the Negroes would turn 50,000 bayonets from loyal border states against us that were for us. Nevertheless, leaders in the North's black community continued to urge the necessity of enlisting black troops. Besides military considerations, they also realized that if the black man proved his patriotism and courage on the battlefield, the nation would be morally obligated to grant him first-class citizenship. No one expressed these sentiments more eloquently than Frederick Douglass, a former slave and America's most prominent black abolitionist. He insisted that, quote, once the black man gets upon his person the brass letters U.S., a musket on his shoulder and bullets in his pocket, there is no power on earth which can deny he has earned the right of citizenship in the United States. Debate about the enlistment of black troops continued until January 1, 1863, when President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Having freed, by executive order, those slaves in rebel-controlled territory in the South, Lincoln could no longer deny the black man the opportunity to fight now that the war was being fought not only to preserve the Union, but to destroy slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation sanctioned the enlistment of blacks into the Army and Navy. By the fall of 1862, some federal commanders, not just in South Carolina, but also in Kansas and occupied sections of Louisiana, had already organized regiments of former slaves and freedmen, but no units had been created by northern state governors. Massachusetts Governor John Andrew, an abolitionist, had wanted to raise a black regiment for some time. Now, he requested and received authorization from Secretary of War Edwin Stanton to organize a three-year regiment of black troops for federal service. Stanton approved Andrew's proposal on January 26, 1863, and the state began the recruitment of volunteers at once. However, Massachusetts had a small black population, and only 100 men volunteered during the first six weeks of recruitment. Disappointed by those numbers, Governor Andrew organized a committee of prominent citizens and black leaders to supervise the recruitment drive. Within two months, the committee had raised $5,000 and opened recruiting offices from Boston to St. Louis resulting in the enlistment of a thousand black men from throughout the Union who became part of the 54th Regiment, Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry, colored. 
Toward the end of the second month of recruiting, volunteers were signing up at the rate of 30 to 40 a day, and Governor Andrews soon had enough recruits to form a second regiment, the 55th Massachusetts. The men who became part of the 54th Massachusetts hailed from 24 states, the District of Columbia, the West Indies, and Africa. A quarter of them had been slaves, and a majority listed their occupation as common laborer. Most of the men could read and write. Two of Frederick Douglass's sons volunteered and would serve in the 54th. As part of the recruitment drive, Governor Andrew had assured the Black volunteers that the regiment's white officers would be committed to the anti-slavery cause and combat veterans. For the 54th's commander, Andrew wanted Robert Gould Shaw, who was a 25-year-old captain in the 2nd Massachusetts Infantry. Shaw was charming and handsome and came from a wealthy and socially prominent Boston abolitionist family. Robert's parents, Francis and Sarah, had joined the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1838, and by 1848, Francis was working with the Boston Vigilance Committee to help runaway slaves secure their freedom. Robert entered Harvard University in 1856, but quit school during his third year of studies and moved to New York to work in his uncle's thriving mercantile business. After the move, Shaw joined an exclusive militia regiment, the 7th New York National Guard. While he didn't share the strong anti-slavery sentiments of his parents, he was fiercely patriotic and was vocal in his opposition to secession. When the Civil War began, Shaw was ready, willing, and able to help defeat the rebellion, and if it took ending slavery to ensure the preservation of the Union, then he was willing to accept that as one of the nation's war aims. When the 7th disbanded, Shaw accepted a commission in the 2nd Massachusetts Infantry. During his 20 months of service with the regiment, he was wounded at Antietam. When Governor Andrew asked the young captain to lead a volunteer regiment of black troops, Shaw was hesitant. He didn't believe the unit would be allowed to see combat, and he also didn't want to abandon the men of the 2nd Massachusetts. However, after much discussion with his parents, Shaw accepted Andrew's offer. In a February 1863 letter to his future wife, Anne Haggerty, he wrote, you know how many eminent men consider a Negro army of the greatest importance to our country at this time. If it turns out to be so, how fully repaid the pioneers in the movement will be for what they may have to go through. I feel convinced I shall never regret having taken this step as far as I myself am concerned. For while I was undecided, I felt ashamed of myself, as if I were cowardly, Shaw received promotion to major in April 1863 and attained the rank of colonel the following month, as befitted the commander of a regiment. Colonel Shaw would now have to navigate the turbulent forces of discrimination that existed within the federal armies.
there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The men of the 54th trained just outside Boston at Reedville under the constant scrutiny of white soldiers, many of whom believed blacks were unfit for combat duty and were only suitable for manual labor or rear area assignments. Yet the racism and negative perceptions which they faced seemed only to inspire a sense of resolve and unity within the ranks of the regiment and their white officers. In fact, Shaw's contact with his men, his first real interaction with African Americans, quickly eroded his own prejudices. Contrary to recruitment promises, the soldiers of the 54th were paid only $10 a month, which was $3 less than white troops. Shaw had become so committed to his men that he wrote to Governor Andrew, insisting that his entire regiment, including the white officers, would refuse pay until his soldiers were, quote, given the same payment as all the other Massachusetts troops, end quote. However, it wasn't up to Governor Andrew, since the 54th was in federal service, and regrettably, in Washington, Congress didn't enact legislation granting equal pay to black soldiers until June 1864. Meanwhile, shortly after the 54th mustered into service, the Confederate Congress in Richmond passed an act stating the rebel government's intention to, quote-unquote, put to death, if captured, any black soldiers, as well as any, quote, white officer who shall command, prepare, or aid Negroes in arms against the Confederate States, end quote. While not necessarily surprising coming from a slaveholding society that had lived for generations in terror of an armed revolt by those it had enslaved and dehumanized, this barbarous directive was nonetheless rather astonishing and only served to strengthen the resolve of the men of the 54th. On May 18, 1863, Governor Andrew traveled to the 54th's camp to present Colonel Shaw with the regimental colors. 
the Stars and Stripes, and the state flag of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. The governor made the trip to Reedville with 3,000 other visitors, including such prominent abolitionists as Frederick Douglass, William Lloyd Garrison, and Wendell Phillips. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, Douglas had a strong personal link to the regiment since two of his sons, Lewis and Charles, had joined the 54th. When Governor Andrew presented the flags to Shaw, he said, I know not, Mr. Commander, in all human history, to any given thousand men in arms, has there been committed a work at once so proud, so precious, so full of hope and glory as the work committed to you. Ten days later, the 54th Massachusetts marched down Boston's Beacon Street on their way to board the steamship that would take them to war. They were greeted by the cheers of thousands of people who had turned out to see the mob. It was an impressive spectacle. Shaw, riding his chestnut brown horse, led the way. Close behind marched the color bearers, followed by rank upon rank of their comrades, handsomely clad in their sharp new uniforms. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow recorded the moment in his diary as, quote, an imposing sight with something wild and strange about it, like a dream. At last, the North consents to let the Negro fight for freedom. We'll continue with the story of the 54th Massachusetts in the next episode, but we wanted to use the last part of the show to talk about something we mentioned a few minutes ago, and that's the initial inequality in pay between white and black soldiers. The discrepancy in pay was the federal military's most egregious example of refusing to accept black soldiers as equals of white troops. While white soldiers were paid $13 a month, of which $3 constituted a clothing allowance, blacks of all ranks were to be paid $10 a month, with the same $3 withheld by the government for clothing, so in reality they would only be paid $7 a month. When Secretary of War Edwin Stanton confirmed the lower pay rate for black troops, the soldiers of the 54th and 55th Massachusetts protested, refusing to accept any pay that was unequal pay. Massachusetts passed legislation that would make up the difference in pay, but the men of the 54th and 55th, insulted by the federal policy, still refused to accept all pay, even the state subsidy, rightly pointing out that white troops in federal service were not paid partly by Washington and partly by their state government. The soldiers and their officers insisted that their pay mattered less to them than the principles of fairness and equity. One black soldier in the 54th, James Henry Gooding, writing directly to President Lincoln after the regiment's attack on Battery Wagner, asked, quote, Now, Your Excellency, we have done a soldier's duty. Why can't we have a soldier's pay? While genuinely sympathetic to the injustice visited upon black soldiers in terms of their unequal pay, Lincoln urged them to remain patient. Frederick Douglass would say that in August 1863, 
The president had reminded him that many whites in the North still doubted the wisdom of enlisting blacks and that the difference in pay between white and black troops could be seen, quote, as a necessary concession to smooth the way to their employment at all as soldiers. Lincoln said that eventually the government would equalize the pay of black and white soldiers, but until then the men of the USCT, the United States Colored Troops, would have to be patient. However, Douglas and the African-American troops in the ranks continued to seethe with indignation over the unequal pay, especially since it was promised to them when they enlisted. In November 1863, in the 3rd South Carolina Volunteers, in protest of the government's unequal pay policy, Sergeant William Walker, a former slave, marched with the men of his company to his commanding officer's tent and ordered them to stack their arms. Walker stated that because the army had failed to uphold its contract with the black soldiers, he and his men were released from the terms of their enlistment. However, his superiors disagreed, and the army court-martialed and executed Sergeant Walker. Outraged by Walker's execution, Governor Andrew of Massachusetts wrote to Abraham Lincoln, deploring the fact that, quote, the government, which found no law to pay him except as a contraband, nevertheless found law enough to shoot him as a soldier. In his December 1863 annual report to the president, Secretary of War Stanton urged Congress to equalize the pay of all soldiers, saying, quote, Soldiers of the Union, fighting under its banner and exposing their lives in battle to uphold the government, colored troops are entitled to enjoy its justice and generosity. Still, though, Republicans in Congress continued to move slowly in remedying this injustice, citing the considerable opposition they confronted from the more conservative members of their own party and from Democrats who disapproved of equalizing the status of black and white troops. Finally, in June 1864, Congress equalized pay for black and white troops, but with a major qualification. Soldiers who had been enslaved at the start of the war would receive retroactive pay only to January 1, 1864, while men free at the beginning of hostilities would receive back pay to the date of their enlistment, as well as bounties, which were kind of like signing bonuses, and which were used more and more as the war went on to boost enlistments. In any case, Thomas Wentworth Higginson was outraged by this blatant injustice against soldiers who had been slaves, and he waged a spirited campaign in the national press in which he accused the government of defrauding former slaves who served in the army and of breaking their contract with them. However, it wasn't until March 3, 1865, that Congress finally granted full retroactive pay to all black soldiers who had been promised equal pay upon mustering into the service. Two months later, the War Department authorized the payment of bounties for all black recruits slave and free, who had enlisted after mid-July 1864. Significantly, the statutes that awarded these bonuses to black Civil War soldiers 
were among the first federal laws based on the principle of equal rights regardless of race. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lincoln and the U.S. Colored Troops by John David Smith. There are a number of good books out there about black troops in the Civil War. We think Smith's book is a good starting point if you'd like to explore this topic on your own outside the podcast. It's part of the Concise Lincoln Library, published by Southern Illinois University Press. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We wanted to let you know that we've recently released two new members episodes, both about the Civil War in Arkansas in 1863. One covers the Battle of Helena, and in the other we talk about the Marmaduke-Walker duel between those two Confederate generals. Anyway, we have quite a few new members of the Strawfoot Brigade to thank for their support of the podcast, so thank you to Austin G., Mark Z., Charles L., and Ruth G., Nicholas H., Hugh S., Desmond J., Terry T., and Gary M., Jared, Bo C., Matthew H., Tom M., and Stephen O., Michael G., Terry B., Tom M., David R., and last but not least, Paul and Zoo. And then thanks to Ron, Randy, Bruce, John, Robert, Mindy, and William for their recent donations. That's a long list of new members and those who donated, mostly thanks to your generosity and also due to the fact that it's been a while since we released a new episode. Uh, Speaking of which, we appreciate your patience However, it's going to be two weeks before we finish up this little story arc about the 54th Massachusetts, since we'll be back in Arkansas next weekend for Tracy's dad's memorial service. And thank you, everyone, for your many kind expressions of sympathy the last couple of weeks. That has really meant a lot, and y'all are so thoughtful. And with that, we'll wrap things up for this show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.